0: Good morning. Uh, great to be together as we continue uh, the good news apocalypse, and the apocalypse uh, is good news. Even though we don't ever use the word that way, um, the, uh, the word apocalypse, as you know by this point, because we talk about every week, means the unveiling. Uh, you've been listening. Unveiling, the unboxing, the revealing of what is uh, maybe not as noticeable Uh, to the normal eye the things that we typically see um, aren't necessarily what is truest and so the apocalypse gives us a picture of what is really true what is really reality Uh, in spite of what might be happening in the world in spite of the chaos that we might be under uh, the apocalypse is intended to pull back the curtain to help us to see uh, what is behind everything that's happening and what we see when we see what's behind is uh, is good news. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're journeying through this apocalyptic book of Revelation, the last book in our, our Bible, and this book is written by John, uh, the Apostle John, who's in prison in the island of Patmos uh, off of the, uh, present-day Turkey. And why is he there? Because John was convinced that Jesus uh, is Lord and Caesar is not Lord, that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, and, it, and John uh, believed that in a time where to worship Jesus was uh, to be a rebel in the uh, in the empire of Rome. Uh, and so John, uh, because he wasn't willing to worship Caesar, because he wasn't willing to go along with the, the cultural uh, stream, he was uh, taken to the island of Patmos. Uh, and so from there, he is writing to his churches, to these faith communities that he had a presence in. At this point, John was in his mid-80s, was around 96 AD, uh, and he's writing to them. Uh, and these churches, and this is important uh, for where we're going today, these churches uh, were small pockets of little house churches kind of scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so different cities, uh, different house churches, but it was a small group of people, a small group of faithful people that were trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in a world that wasn't willing uh, to uh, bend their knee to Jesus. Uh, and so when we think of Christianity today, we often think of it as this, uh, this global uh, movement, this global uh, religion and uh, but at the time it was just this this very micro small house church thing that was happening so john writes this apocalypse wanting to encourage these small house churches to see jesus for who he really is to be encouraged uh, in their faith uh, to comfort them and we use the word comfort here in the latin sense uh, cuz comfort has two words in latin come with which means with and fort from the Latin word forte, which means strength. And so John is writing this to comfort them, to literally help them to move forward with strength. Last week, we got to the center of the apocalypse, which is the theological center of the whole book, uh, where John sees uh, the heavenly throne room, where he sees the Almighty on the throne, and in the Almighty, standing in the Almighty on the throne. Uh, is what he understood to be the line of Judah. That's what he heard, but when he looked, he saw a lamb. And so the Almighty is revealed to John in this apocalypse, in this unveiling, not as this uh, lion figure who would come to dominate the world systems and powers, but as a lamb who actually came to suffer at the hands of the world powers. It was actually through suffering that the lamb became victorious. And this is the upside-down good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to earth, uh, died a criminal's death on a cross, and was resurrected three days later, it was through his suffering, through his obedience to that suffering, that he became victorious. And so what we see in the center of the universe is a victorious slain little lamb who is actually transforming the world, uh, even though what we see around us is chaos. Uh, And so this is uh, the apocalypse uh, that John uh, continues to see. And the point of the apocalypse and any apocalyptic book in literature, uh, again, is to present uh, the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. And so we often think Revelation is primarily about the future, but it's actually primarily about the present, because an apocalyptic writing is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. And so what John is experiencing, what John is seeing, is what John is currently living in, currently going through. And he's encouraging his church not just about something that's going to happen someday down the road a couple thousand years later, but something that is currently true today for them and also for us. Uh, so as we move forward, before we get into the particular text that we're going to go through this morning, uh, we need to go back and talk about the literary structure of the book. We talked about this week one. Uh, so we're going back to it because now uh, is probably an important time for us to revisit how this book is written, how it's laid out, uh, because it... it, it uh, has implications on how we read it and how we understand it. Uh, so the literary structure of the book, this book is not chronological, despite people's uh, attempts to view it that way, that they start at the beginning, and they work their selves the end of the book of Revelation, uh, and they think that every sequence is a new sequence at a new point in history, uh, often a point in history that has yet to happen. We actually get to the end um, of history as we know it six times in the book of Revelation. We get to that same place six times. There's different cycles of visions and it all, it it comes back to the same point uh, six different times. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but the book is not chronological. And again, this is clearly seen when you go to Romans or Revelation chapter 12, Uh, we actually have the Christmas Eve scene in the middle of the book uh, when God, Emmanuel came to be with us in the form of a baby. Uh, And so we see that. Uh, seen, retold metaphorically in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Revelation 12 is the the theological, uh, it gives us theological uh, energy and strength to what we've already seen about how God works, that he actually comes even in his weakness um, in in that scene, in the the Christmas Eve scene in, in Revelation 12. So the book's not chronological. So when we're reading Revelation, we should never ask, what happens next? We should never ask that question. What we should ask is, what does John see next? Because what John sees next is not necessarily what happens next. Uh, And so John has an order in which he sees things, but he's often seeing things not necessarily in historical, chronological order, Uh, but what he's seeing is impacting his present world, and he's being encouraged and comforted and giving that to his church in the midst of what's happening in the world. And 40 times in the book of Revelation, we, we read the phrase, I saw, and 32 times, I heard. And so John is seeing and he's hearing over and over again, all of these different things, these different images, these sensations, these sounds, uh, and it's painting a picture for him on how to anchor himself in his present moment. Craig Coaster, who wrote uh, the Revelation End of All Things, uh, says this about the structure of the book, those who read Revelation as a whole encounter visions that alternately threaten and assure them. With increasing intensity, the visions at the bottom of the spiral threaten the reader's sense of security by confronting them with horsemen that represent conquest, violence, hardship, and death. By portents in heaven and earth and sea, and by seemingly unsurpable adversaries who oppose those who worship God in Christ. Nevertheless, each time the clamor of conflict becomes unbearable, readers are transported into the presence of God, the Lamb and the heavenly Course. These visions appear at the, the top of the spiral, threatening visions and assuring visions function differently, but they all serve the same end, which is that readers might continue to trust in God and remain faithful to God. So no matter if we're, if we're reading uh, visions that are assuring um, or visions that are threatening, uh, all of the visions are, are intended to actually bring the same response to the followers of God, is to remain faithful and trust Him, even though uh, the world uh, is moving in a certain direction. And there might be consequences in the immediate future for choosing to worship and follow the way of the Lamb. Uh, John is trying to show them that even if you give your life for the Lamb, it is still worth it in the end. And so, Koester here is talking about the cycles that go through the book of Revelation, and so we see six cycles um, that happen in, in the book. Uh, and these uh, visions uh, kind of go in the cycle, and they're intended, again, to shock, but also to comfort us. And the intent of each cycle is to encourage us to follow the Lamb. And there's visions of celebration and triumph at the top of every single cycle. And so we see these visions that kind of go onto an earth level of what's happening on the earth, and then it comes back up to the heavens and the heavenly throne room uh, to assure and comfort uh, those who are following the way of the Lamb. Uh, and so those numbers there in the bottom are the, the chapter sequence you can see as they go through those cycles. So again, not chronological, uh, but the same cycles that we see over and over and over again, uh, telling us from different perspectives what is happening. Uh, and so we see the seven messages to the churches, Revelation 1 to 3, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. There's going to be a test at the end, so take notes. Uh, the unnumbered visions and Revelation 12 to 15, the seven plagues with the seven bowls in Revelation 15 to 19, and then more unnumbered visions uh, at the end of the book. So all that to say, what concerns us in the present moment is that we uh, are looking at the seven seals, which is the beginning of three different sets of of seven disciplines or judgments or hardships uh, that we see that are happening on the earth. And so seven seals uh, are in Revelation 6, and the seventh one is in Revelation 8. Now, have you ever asked the question, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-loving, why doesn't he do something about fill in the blank? Has anybody ever asked that question? This is uh, often what's referred to as the problem of evil. Uh, It's under, uh, people call it other names as well. But the problem of evil uh, just has to do with those three truths that we embrace as Christians, that there's evil in this world, that God is all-powerful, and that God is also all-loving. And how, how do all three of those things coexist at the same time? And people have been wrestling and trying to theologically wrestle with this throughout all of church's history, When people ask, where are you, God? What are you doing? Are you doing this or something else or somebody else doing this? Are you the cause of this? Is something else causing this? Where are you in the midst of this? You know, all of these questions are questions that the people of God were asking when the book of Revelation was written. It's the questions the people of God are still asking today. Uh, And I have good news for you. Revelation is dealing with attention, but I also have bad news for you. Revelation doesn't tell you the answer that you want. Revelation affirms these truths and gives us, it doesn't give us a nice, tidy answer. Um, like everywhere in Revelation, it gives us pictures. And the point of these pictures, again, is to comfort, to actually allow us to remain faithful in the present moment. Uh, and even though we might want some nice, tidy answer, there's this mysterious truth that God is still working, that God is still sovereign, that God is actually still loving. And yet, in the midst of that, there's... Uh, evil that is happening in this world and that continues to happen. And the irony as we go through the book of Revelation is that it seems that it's necessary for a certain amount of suffering and evil to happen uh, for God to completely do what he wants to do through the course of history. And it's not that God is causing these things to happen, but God is redemptively working in the suffering that is happening in this world, uh, much like he redemptively worked through the, his own suffering on the cross. That from the outside looking in, the cross looked like the defeat of God. That the Messiah was a failure. Those were the earthly eyes. But the apocalyptic eyes, we actually see the resurrection three days later, and that the cross was a means to a necessary end where God became all in all and conquered even death itself. And so there's this mystery that is being wrestled with through images in the book. And we see this profoundly in the seven seals. So remember, the seven seals come from uh, the throne room where the lamb, the slain lamb, is, uh, is the one who, the only one in all of history who is, has the authority and ability to open the scroll, and the scroll has seven seals on it. So one by one, the lamb starts to uh, take these seals off, and each seal um, actually starts a new series of events. Now, I want to start on the seventh seal, the very last seal, uh, that's the beginning of chapter eight. And the reason I want to start on the, seventh, on the eighth one uh, is because we're still actually talking about the structure before we get into the specifics. Uh, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl are all describing the exact same event. Uh, this is what often gets missed when people read the book of Revelation chronologically. Um, but they're all describing the same event. And you can see uh, in Revelation 8.5, this is the seventh seal, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And we see the same scene that is repeated three times at the, at the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl. This is describing the movement of God. It's an echo uh, from Mount Sinai when, when Moses met with God on the mountain and God showed up in a unique way that he's never shown up before in the course of history. And Moses, it says, saw God face to face. And so there was an intimacy and an encounter with God that, that was... Um, that came with thunder and flashes of lightning. Uh, and so there's a similar imagery being used here. Remember that Revelation uses images and characters and scenes from the Old Testament over and over and over again throughout the book. In fact, we've probably passed 100 already, and we haven't taken the time to talk about them. But this would be one. Uh, and so what this is describing is that this God, this God is showing up on earth in a way that he hasn't at any previous point in history. The God, the, the kingdom of heaven is becoming the kingdom of earth. Uh, and then what Moses experienced in terms of this revelation of God, now the whole world, the whole globe is experiencing uh, the same level of revelation. And it's not just to one person, but to the entire world. Uh, and so this is the seventh seal. This is the event that happens that we, we come back to over and over again. Uh, and now, not to get too crazy, uh, but anyways this is what it is. Uh, the The bulls happen within the seventh trumpet, which also happened within the seven seals. Uh, and so you know those nesting dolls? Anybody know those nesting dolls? And how you, you open one and then there's another one in there? Um, this is basically what's happening in the book as we go through these uh, these three sets of seven, uh, as, as the seventh seal gets opened, there's a whole set of seven that's inside that seven. And then as the seventh trumpet gets revealed, there's a whole set of sevens inside that seven. Uh, and so within the seven are the other sevens. Okay? Um, and what's happening as we, they go through each, each uh, section of seven is the event that's being described is, goes from being more local to more global. So a nesting doll gets smaller and smaller, but actually what's happening here is the event that's being described, we begin to see it from a whole global cosmic level by the end of the book. Okay? You guys still with me? So uh, the seven seals. We talked about the eight one. We won't come back to it uh, today. Uh, Let's look at the other six. And so the first four of the seven seals... Um, are quite infamous uh, because they are the four horsemen. And we've seen paintings and pictures and movies, uh, characters that have depicted these four horsemen uh, throughout uh, pop culture. Uh, there's lots of historic paintings of these four horsemen. Uh, and so they're, they're quite famous throughout history. Uh, and so we're going to look at them quickly one by one. And so remember, we're coming out of the throne room. Uh, the lamb has been given the, the, the scroll, the seal. Uh, There's seven seals on it, and he alone is the one who can unlock the scroll. And the scroll describes uh, God's salvation plan for all of history, how he's going to bring everything uh, back to rights. So it says, as I watched, the lamb broke the first seal, or first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, come. I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. Now that highlighted line there, um, it's actually, there's a negative connotation to that line. It's actually literally, he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So this isn't a good news horse. Um, There's something catastrophic that's happening as he's unleashed and again there's four and the number of four is the world the earth right so this is uh describing what is happening on the earth okay and so this first uh this first horse represents conquest there's conquest on the earth there's there's power there's dominion there's people uh leveraging power over other people um And then we get to the second seal. And so when the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. And so the second horse uh, represents the war or the wars uh, that have been going on uh, throughout History that were going on in the time when John was writing this. So we have conquest. Uh, And you can see how all these things are actually related. related. Uh, When people actually come in dominance over another group of people, it's through the form of war and death. And for some people to thrive, it means that other people need to suffer. That's the way that history has moved forward. And then when the Lamb opened the third seal... I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. And these scales are are, uh, metaphorical to symbolize uh, the economics, uh, financial scales. Uh, Then I heard what, what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine." And so there's conquest, there's there's people dominating over other people and they do that through the way of war and the result is that other people experience famine, poverty, and inflation. This is what's being described there if you go back um, when it says uh, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. What's being described here is the average amount of one day's earnings at that time. And so what, what's being said is that people will, u- will have to use everything that they're making just to afford the bare necessities of life. Inflation, poverty, famine. Uh, do we know anything about that in our world today? You say, that's not news, it's just inflation. <laughs> oh. Sorry, I try not to do too many political digs, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help myself. So inflation was something that was already obviously happening throughout history, but this is the world that John is speaking into with his churches that are experiencing uh, poverty, they're experiencing famine, they're experiencing a spike uh, in prices that it's it's hard to even afford to live in the world that John was living in. And that actually forced the church to maybe make uh, decisions of compromise, right? So that's what he's speaking to. Uh, even those of there's hardship, he's trying to encourage them and comfort them not uh, not to compromise, uh, even in light of that. Uh, and then the fourth seal. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice, the fourth living creature say, come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades. Hades was following close behind him, and they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, I just got to spend a little bit of time on, on this Text here. Um, so the fourth rider is death, and Hades was following him. Uh, and Hades is, uh, in in Greek language and thinking, uh, Hades is the place where the dead currently reside. And so sometimes we think of this version of Hades, which some, which our Bibles translate in hell, as hell in some places, uh, as this eternal state. But what When the word Hades is being used, what it's being described is the place where the dead currently are, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And so the scene that we see here is that death through war, through famine, through plagues is going across the earth and there are people, there's corpses that are actually piling up behind it, behind this horse. So this is the the gross image that we see. And we see that they were given a power over a fourth of the earth. And anytime there's a fraction used in the book of Revelation, it's uh, it's uh, typically symbolizing the mercy of God, that there's somehow God's mercy and he's holding back. He's holding back the forces of evil. There isn't a complete destruction that's happening here, but there, there's a level of destruction that is being allowed in uh, But God's mercy is actually withholding evil from having a heyday here. And so there's a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword. So not to be taken literally, but again, no numbers in Revelation should be taken literally. But what is happening here is that God is actually actively holding back uh, evil from completely going through the world. But there is some level of evil being allowed to function. Now again, we read that and we're like, okay, so who's allowing it? Who's causing it? Uh, again these are questions that the book of revelation doesn't answer Uh, we see references to you know people causing it over other people we see references to the dragon causing it to the beast causing it and we see uh the the lamb himself uh bringing wrath and judgment on the earth so we see all these images that are happening uh in the book of revelation um and i debated whether to to go here but i'm i'm going to uh because i have the slides so uh uh stay with me for a second. Uh this last this last phrase in Reve- which is Revelation 6, 6 verse 8 is a really fascinating phrase. Um and uh so in the in the Greek language you can see what looks like an E V in your English there. It's the the Greek word N, which is a preposition, uh which means by. Uh and so literally what it what it's saying in the beginning of the verse uh is uh, they were given a power over a f- fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by the famine, by the plague, or by famine, by plagues. And so we have three instances of the same preposition. Now, the fourth preposition, and uh, by the wild beasts of the earth, uh, is not n. it's not the Greek word n. it's the Greek word hupo, uh, which is actually from, the source of. Uh, the wild beasts. And and 39 times in the book of Revelation, the word beasts is used. 38 of those 39 times is describing the beasts that we're going to discover here in Revelation 12 and 13, the beasts of the earth, the beast of the sea, um, which are actually being controlled by the dragon. Uh, and so we could actually literally translate Revelation 6 verse 8 as saying um, they were given power from the wild beasts over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague. Um, Yet at the beginning of the passage, we see that Jesus is the one opening the seals, and it's the heavenly creatures that are saying, come, and then it's the horsemen that are coming when they say, come. Uh, So again, back to the mystery, how is this all happening? All that to say, we don't really know. Uh, But there's some level of evil being allowed Uh, And I think particularly when we get to Revelation 12 and 13, we'll see that it's not God that is causing it, uh, but God is allowing, at least for a a temporary period of time, uh, for Satan and those who are in partnership with Satan to do a certain amount of damage here on the earth. I'll leave it there. So we see conquest, war, famine and poverty and inflation, uh, death and sickness, happening by the four horsemen on the earth. So at this point, probably many of you are asking, when does all of this stuff happen? When are these events set to happen? And the answer, and I've referred to it already, is that it's been happening. Uh, Many people, mostly in modern times, uh, this is a relatively new um, kind of trajectory in reading the book of Revelation, see what is being described as something that's going to happen in the future at some great tribulation uh, down the road. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, Um, but that's actually not what is happening. Uh, What's being described as something that was currently happening, and it's still happening. The four horsemen have been galloping across the earth throughout history. The time between the first and the seven seals Uh, is not actually a time in the future. The time between the first and seven seals is a time between Christmas Eve and the second coming of Jesus. It's the time between the first advent and the second advent. And so what's being described here was true for the early church, and is just as true for us as it was for the early church. In fact, John in Revelation 1 verse 9, and this is really important, he says, I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering, and the Greek word there is literally... The, revel- or the tribulation. John sees himself as part of the tribulation that he's describing in the visions. So this is not something that's happening someday down the road that we're all waiting for. It's something that we're living in. It's something that we're currently living in. Uh, and I was reading some stats this week, and sometimes we can forget this. The first century began with attempted genocide when angry young Turks murdered 1.5 million Armenians. In the middle of the century, Adolf Hitler had six million Jews slaughtered. Stalin had even more Russians slaughtered. It's believed that more than six million people died as a direct or indirect result of war in the last decade of the 20th century alone. Afghanistan over one million. Algeria between 80,000 and 100,000. Colombia between 40,000 and 250,000. India between 30 and 50,000. Iraq between 100 to 250,000. Myanmar, uh, whom we've been invested in through partners, uh, which you'll hear about this month. Um, there's been 130,000 up to 500,000. Rwanda, 500,000 to 800,000. Sri Lanka, 55,000 to 70,000. Sudan, 1.5 million. It's estimated that 1.5 million of these were children and that even 4 million of the survivors were disabled, maimed, blinded, or brain damaged. Now, I give those graphic stats just to actually bring to this graphic picture that we're seeing in Revelation that what is being described, the war, The death, the corpses piling up, the famine, the economic instability, the rich becoming richer and the poor becoming poor. What is being described in the scene of the four horsemen is the world that we live in, lest we forget. John sees himself as part of the tribulation that is happening. And the seals go on. Then the Lamb broke the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? We see this graphic, again, graphic picture of an altar And there's blood that is pooling underneath the altar, and it's the blood of the martyrs who have been faithful to Jesus throughout the generations that have given their lives in faithfulness. And they're praying, and they're they're yelling to the Lamb, how long? How many of us have yelled or groaned that same prayer? How long is this going to go on for? How long, God, will you wait before you make right what has been done? How long will you wait before your justice comes? It says, then a white robe is given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, were to be martyred, had joined them. So here's the the mystery of what is happening. Uh, The answer to how long is they're not given a specific time, uh, but they're told uh, that God is patient, and that he's waiting for the full number of God's people, even the martyrs, uh, to join them. What? Somehow, again, go back to the cross and the scene of the lamb and suffering being victory, that there's somehow that God works redemptively, even in suffering, to bring fully those, as many as he can, into the family of God. And it goes on, I watched as the lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs. Falling from a fig tree, shaken by a strong wind, and the sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, all hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide from us the face of the one who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come. Who is able to survive? One of the unfortunate things that happens when people read the book of Revelation is they associate the wrath of the Lamb with the tribulation and the suffering. Uh, These two words are very separate, and they describe different events through the book of uh, Revelation. There's a, if you remember from, I forgot what week it is, we talked about flipsis, the suffering that is happening because the kingdoms are clashing. And then there's the judgment of God, the wrath of God, who is actually bringing justice to the earth as all the saints are crying out, God, where is your justice? And so we see these questions. Who is able to survive and who is able to stand? Those are the two questions that are asked in the fifth seal and the sixth seal. And so we've gone through this graphic imagery that's describing what is happening on the earth, both for John's people and even today. And then we get to the interlude. So remember the cycles. So here we're, we're coming to the top of the cycle. Revelation 7 is the interlude. We're taken from the scenes of the earth to the scene of heaven. Revelation 7 seeks to bring some form of an answer or comfort in the midst of the questions, how long God and who is going to survive? Jesus doesn't tell them how long, but he shows them why this is continuing and that he has a greater purpose that is happening. So Revelation 7 says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds. So we see the mercy of God even in this here. So they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Wait! Don't harm the land or the sea or the, or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Um, and again, seal... is is describing ownership, its identity. These are people that are part of the family of God. They've been, the seal of God is on them. Uh, And we'll talk about the significance of foreheads later. Um, uh, But there's a contrast here between the foreheads being marked, the the followers of the lamb being marked with the seal and also the mark of the beast that we'll we'll get to later. Uh, So this is the scene that's happening in heaven. And then this is what verse 4 reads. And I what? Heard. Okay. So we heard this, we heard this word uh, last week. Remember? And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. And then it goes on to describe uh, 12,000 people from each of the tribes of Israel. And so we get to this number, 144,000. And so many people have thought that this number is a literal number uh, in some way, and they have different ways of interpreting, interpreting that and understanding what it's referring to. Uh, but again, the numbers in Revelation are not literal, they're symbolic. Um, there's lots of different uh, kind of branches or movements throughout history that have tried to take in parts of Revelation and taken them literally, and they resulted um, in quite interesting trajectories. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses are actually one group that believes exactly 144,000 faithful Christians uh, will get to enter heaven. Uh, 144,000 faithful from uh, the inception of the church from 33 AD until today. And so if you aren't part of that 144,000, too bad. This number's not literal, it's, it's symbolic. Um, I remember having this discussion with Jehovah Witnesses that would knock on my door and they'd come talk to me. Uh, and we had some interesting conversations about the book of Revelation and symbols and literalness. And um, it actually led to us talking about the lamb. And I, I asked them who the lamb represented. Uh, sorry, they, they also don't believe that Jesus is God. So um, a little bit of background there. And then I asked them who the lamb represented. And they said, Jesus. Uh, and I said, so what do you make of the elders repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation worshiping Jesus? If, they're, if he's not God. Uh, and then they didn't come and visit me anymore after that. Uh, so John, John hears 144,000, right? And 144,000 is, uh, is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And if we go back to the number 12, and we remember the 24 elders. Uh, we talked about that last week. But 12 by, times 12, and these numbers represent the people of God throughout history, both uh, historically the Jews the Jews. Uh, And also the the second 12 of the 24, probably and possibly the apostles. Uh, But either way, the number 12 represents God's people. Uh, And then you times it by a thousand, and it represents this huge number of God's people. Now remember, the people that John was speaking to were local, small communities that were trying to follow Jesus. And then what John sees is this number, what John hears is this number. 144,000. This is what John hears, which is interesting. How do you hear 144,000? Uh, anyways, so this is what John hears. But then John turns, and he sees something different, and he, what he saw was a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in the front of the throne before the Lamb. What John sees is a great multitude, too many people to count, This goes all the way back to the beginning of the biblical story when God called the person Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. The the understanding of uh, the Israelites throughout history was God had anointed them not just for their own sakes, but for the sake of the world. Now what God is doing at the end of time is fulfilling the promise that that he always had, that he was going to impact the globe, that there would be a great multitude, and this people would be made up from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And remember that John is speaking to a group of followers of Jesus who is very small in the midst of the Roman Empire, uh, meeting with people that probably looked like them and talked like them. And, 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 and all of a sudden this community is growing and there's, there's, there's people that are rich and poor coming together. There's people that are from different languages coming together. And, and all of a sudden the kingdom of God is breaking down the boundaries and borders in the kingdom of this world. For reasons we don't understand, there's a point and a purpose to God waiting. So we don't know why God does that, but we know that the end picture is the reason that God is waiting is that he wants everybody from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation to be gathered, to be worshiping him because this is why they were created. The hugeness of the multitude is forged through rather than escapes from the tribulation. We'll talk about that more next week. We're going to talk about the rapture a little bit next week. Um, I debated whether to talk about it uh, because Revelation doesn't talk about it. But we're going to talk about it um, because people think that's what Revelation is talking about. But that's not what it's talking about. So the hugeness of the multitude, of every tribe, every tongue, every nation is actually forged through, comes through tribulation and suffering. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with the great war, salvation belongs from our God who sits on the throne and from the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. They sang. So again, we're, we're in the heavenly scene. We're in the throne room. We're, we're being brought back up to the top of the cycle again. And what we see is a worship service that is always, always happening. They sang, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are those who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I say to him, sir, you are the one uh, who knows. Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. And I've highlighted that line again, because it's it's actually a bad translation. The It literally says, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. It's a present tense verb that's being used. It's not something that happened. It's something that's happening. These are the ones who are coming out of the suffering. These are the ones who continue to come out on the other side, who are faithful to the Lamb. He's referring specifically to the great trial that the church of his own time is experiencing and about which he speaks prophetically towards us that we currently now also experience. They have washed the robes and the blood of the lamb and made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. So now we get to this climactic moment in the throne room. Right? So we've gone from the four horsemen, the, scene, the scenes on the earth, to the scene in the middle of the throne room, and we see this forecast about uh, this glorious day in the future, that also Revelation 21 and 22 are telling us about, and it says, they will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun, for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eye. So on the earth, we ask questions like, how long is this going to last for? God, what are you going to do? When is your justice going to show up? And we don't have the answers to those questions. And God doesn't give them here, but what he tells us is that he's waiting. And we know the purpose of his waiting is that he wants to bring in as many people from as many different languages and tribes and nations and tongues to be a part of the people of God that will live with him forever. And for the early church, this meant their enemies. Every tribe, nation, and tongue meant those Romans. Fill in the blank. Every tribe, nation, and tongue means I don't know your story or where you're from, but you're invited to be a part of the family of God. You're invited to be with him forever. On earth, we have these Revelation 6 moments. Let's contrast Revelation 6 and 7. We have these Revelation 6 moments and we want to know, God, why is this happening? Where are you? Do you even care? How long are you going to put up with this injustice? Why is this chaos happening? When will you deliver us from the tribulation? When will you enact your judgment on all the injustice that's happening in the world? And then God actually gives us an apocalypse, and he pulls back the curtain. He says, there's actually a purpose in the waiting. I know you can't see it. I know you can't understand it. But what you need to know is that the Lamb is still on the throne. What you need to know is that he will give you a white robe, which we saw in the text, which refers to us being forgiven, which refers to us being able to be fully in his presence. And so in light of this apocalypse, in light of what you see, will you commit to the way of the lamb? Even though you can't understand it, will you choose to worship him even when you don't want to? Will you choose to follow him in a world that is moving in the opposite direction? Because you can be confident that even though you have doubts and questions, that in the end it will be worth it. That's the Revelation 7 apocalypse. I'm going to invite you to stand as we respond. We're going to respond in a song that was written and inspired by the heavenly throne room worship scene. And so I don't know what you're walking in, what suffering and what tribulation, um, but I hope this is encouraging. As, as horrific as the book, as some of these scenes are, I hope it's encouraging that what's being described is not something someday far away, but it's actually something today. When you read your news feeds, when you go to work, when you're dealing with that bad news that you're trying to figure out what to do with it, we get sucked into these Revelation 6 perspective where we just focus on the earth and all, and all that's happening in us and around us but the Revelation 7 moment is where we actually bring our eyes up. We look into heaven, we see that Jesus is still on the throne, that the lamb is conquered, even though he was slain. Actually, because he was slain, he's conquered. And that gives us perspective today. And so the song we sing is inspired from these different throne room scenes at the top of the cycles. We'll see words that are being used in the song uh, that come from the book of Revelation. And remember the Every time that we worship, we enter into a worship service that is already happening. And so I invite you to lift your eyes up from your Revelation 6 perspective, and let's engage uh, with the perspective of heaven. So Jesus, we thank you for the apocalypse, the unveiling. We thank you for the revelation of who you are. And Lord, even though we have questions, even though we want to know when and we want to know why and we want to know all these things, and often we don't know those things. Lord, we thank you that you gave us what we needed to know to be faithful in the moment. So we look to you again. Would you comfort us? Would you give us strength to move forward? In Jesus' name, amen.